the Voicing Creativity Podcast, Voicing Creative Research. I'm Shannon Vickers, professor in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Winnipeg, where I teach somatic approaches to voice and performance and engage in interdisciplinary arts-based research. This first season of the Voicing Creativity Podcast focuses on voicing creative research. Each episode showcases the prolific and inspiring work of some of Canada's leaders across the humanities, highlighting their creativity in research, pedagogy, and artistic practice. Today's episode features Miriam Fernandez. Miriam Fernandez is a Toronto-based artist who has worked as an actor, director, and theatre maker across Canada, USA, Norway, France, and Australia. As the co-artistic director of Why Not Theatre, she is currently co-writing and adapting for the stage the ancient epic Mahabharata with Why Not Theatre and the Shaw Festival, developing a deaf hearing production of Lady Macbeth in partnership with 1S1 Collective, and is a co-writer and performer in What You Won't Do for Love with Drs. David Suzuki and Tara Cullis. Directing credits include The Courage to Write a Woman's Wrongs with the Stratford Festival Mian Forum, Metamorphoses with CDTPS, Hayavadana with Soul Pepper Theatre, and Nason with Mini Midi Maxi Festival in Norway, and The First Time I Saw the Sea with YVA Company Norway. Miriam also has a passion for theatre training. She studied with Anne Bogart's City Company and is a graduate of École Internationale de Théâtre Jacques Lecoq in Paris. At Why Not, she co-created the This Gen Fellowship Program that connects BIPOC women and non-binary artists with world-class international mentors and teachers in order to expand their practice and support their leadership across the country. Miriam has also worked as an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Centre for Drama, Theatre and Performance Studies, and as an artist educator with Soul Pepper Theatre, George Brown Theatre School, and Suitcase and Point Theatre. She is the recipient of the JBC Watkins Award and is a Dora Maver Moore Award nominee. Miriam Fernandez, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. It is an absolute honor to get a chance to speak to you about your amazing, prolific, arts-based creative work and research that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shannon. It's really nice to be here. Thank you. Um, You know, I really enjoyed engaging with some of the work that I was able to access, even though we live in different parts of the country and here in Canada. (laughs) Um, And I really noticed uh, some themes that came up in your work that are also near and dear to my own heart and also have come up in some of the conversations that I've had with some of the other guests in season one. And those themes include love, empathy, mentorship and community, and also interdisciplinarity in arts-based practice and research. And so I wondered Mm -hmm. if we could speak a little bit about some of your amazing artistic works um, around these themes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, So I had the great um, privilege of watching your amazing film, What You Won't Do for Love. and I wondered if you could share a little bit about the trajectory of that um, film and also the stage version of it. 
Um, I understand that you had reached out to David Suzuki and had invited him to be in a production of a play called The Life of Galileo. Would you tell our listeners a bit about how that relationship evolved and um, some of the creative work that came out of that relationship building? Yeah, yeah. So What You Want to Do for Love, I mean, it's it's a show that's been in process for the last like five years. We finally, literally just, just a week ago, closed the the world premiere of it, but it definitely took a lot Congrats. longer than anything you it took as, as for most of us after, during this pandemic, uh, it took longer than any of us anticipated. Um, but yeah, the idea really came about, I mean, Ravi, my collaborator, uh, he was the one who, who reached out to David first, actually. Hmm. We kind of rewrote, we rewrote the script. So it's, it's mostly, um, it's it's mostly it's all factual, but we did like a little bit of character changing around. Mm. Um, so, anyways, Ravi had reached out to David, um, wanting to create a play about the climate uh, with David. And then in the first workshop, uh, David's wife came on, uh, Tara Kalas. She joined the project, and I joined as a as a co collaborator with Ravi. And what emerged was really like a, a conversation between the four of us. Uh, we kind of went into that process in 2019, I want to say 2019 January, um, to to figure out how what what we what story we were going to tell, how we were going to tell the story. We had no real idea. We just knew they were the main characters. How cool! Uh, yeah, we didn't know if it was going to be fiction, if we were going to kind of listen to their stories and and write a play about it. But what really emerged were we got to spend so much time with the two of them. I'll, I'll say Ravi. Myself and Kevin Matthew Wong, who was our dramaturg originally, mm. uh, or Kevin stayed on, but it was the three of us originally. Um, and an artist named Darwin Lyons, actually, in that first in that first iteration. And anyways, the four of us had spent spent like a week at the David Suzuki Foundation in Vancouver with the two of them, mm. just asking questions and get and kind of listening to their stories. And their stories were so overwhelming because these were. I mean, we all kind of have an idea of who David Suzuki is. I think nobody really knows who Tara Cullis is, who's David's partner of 50 years and is uh, a, an amazing uh, and ferocious climate activist uh, herself and has been a huge leader in the environmental movement in Canada, and nobody knows who she is. She was the one who started the David Suzuki Foundation, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so so she was the real revelation, and then... Just it felt like such a gift to be able to spend time with the two of them and listen to these stories, like how you would sit with your grandparents and listen to stories. Mm-hmm. And we thought maybe like it it's we feel so lucky to be to be at this table. What if we could create a play that gave audiences the opportunity of sitting at David and Tara's dinner table and having these conversations? Because the chats that we have around dinner or lunch or around our kitchen tables are really kind of like it's that's life, right? Yeah. The kind yeah. of honesty, the kind of vulnerability, the humor uh, that just exists around a table. Um, it felt like the right space. And so the play really evolved out of those conversations. Um, and then as the piece evolved, um, Ravi stepped out of the performer role. My husband, Sterla, stepped in because it became clear that the piece was really about love. Mm. Um and so it it made more sense that it was an older couple and a younger couple. 
And so we're in this intergenerational conversation. And so Sterla brought his stories in that opened up a whole other kind of layer of the conversation because it was suddenly two couples speaking to each other. Um, and so it becomes an intergenerational conversation about love and the planet and, and looking at these two heroic people who've spent their entire lives fighting for the planet and understanding what it means to kind of pick up that baton for our generation. How beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing about how that all evolved. Um, at the beginning of the film, you mentioned, um, you know, what a kind of question really that, you know, struck me as an artist myself. And then also because I'm in academia, we often are thinking about the research question. Um, mm. And so at the beginning of the film, you say, what if we could love the planet the way we love each other or the way that they love each other? Um, mm. would, would we change? And you know, I was really struck by that as both an artistic uh, question for the storytelling that uh, followed and the advocacy that followed. And also, you know, as a, as a sort of research question. And what I found really fascinating was, mm -hmm. you know, you and David Suzuki speaking about how to communicate the science um, and, and Tara as well, and also Sterla as well, how, how this story of the science um, could be shared to be evocative and to promote change. And um, mm -hmm. at one point in the film, you know, you mentioned something that is so beautifully worded. You said, for me, art is a way of making the invisible visible. It's mm -hmm. exactly what you're doing, David. When you look into a microscope, it's poetic, bridging mm -hmm. arts. And so I was thinking, gosh, you know, like this is really fascinating. Can you speak to that dialogue that you had um, where David was mentioning that, you know, communicating the science in an artistic way is the way forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it's funny that whole storyline really emerged out of Tara's thesis, which mm -hmm. was all about the right and left brain, mm -hmm. which is about these two sides of the brain that, that we've kind of, we've, so the left side is linear, it's mathematical, it's scientific, it breaks things down into parts. And the right side of the brain sees the whole. It's the world of imagination and feeling and emotion and uh, and art in a lot of ways. And so I think that David, David and Tara have said that they've spent their entire lives trying to figure out how to communicate the science to change people's behavior. That's why David wanted to go on TV in the first place. He said, look, scientists have access to all of this information, but if the general public can't access it, nothing's going to change. Yeah. And so their whole life has been trying to figure out how to do that. How, what are all the ways that we can communicate with people to move, to, to get them to change their behavior. And both David and Tara say that like they've spent the last 40 years trying to give people facts and, and um, give them the information. But actually the thing that really moves us or, or one of the things that moves us is art. It's music. It's, it's, um, it's storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so, for, for them, they talk about how, what a powerful experience this has been for them because they've never, this has never been a way that they've tried to communicate their message before. Mm. So that's been powerful. And for us too, I mean, wow. it's, it's what we're trying to do as artists, right? Like they're, we're of course, taking all yeah. these big, big ideas and themes and challenges that our world is facing mm -hmm. and, and put a frame around them that helps us not only see them more clearly, but feel them or feel for oh. someone else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Yeah, we, we know that in the theater, you know, that's uh, why we're drawn into the theater. We, we care about feeling and, and the possibility that feeling has to change the world for the better. The experience of doing it live in the theater, too, was really uh, amazing after making the film. Like, we made the film because we didn't know if we'd ever get a shot at the live version. Because uh, David was like, David is 86 now. And when the <sighs> pandemic hit, we were like, you know what? We might not ever have a chance to do this with them. So we have to do something. So we captured it on film. But then having the chance to take it into a theater again, also after being away from theaters for two years, it really was like a reminder of what that live experience is because it's something so different. It's so much more emotional than uh, record like um, digital recordings. There's something about there's something like mysterious about being in the same room, sharing the same air, mm-hmm. which we're all even more conscious of during COVID. Mm-hmm. But but to watch people be breathe, real breathing people live on stage where anything could happen. I think we were all kind of uh, shocked and surprised and moved at what that experience was again. Oh, it sounds beautiful. Yeah, I'm reminded of um, the mirror neurons and actually uh, thinking of Anne Bogart, yeah. you know, uh, like that power of storytelling in a live space to um, promote empathy. Um, I was, yeah. I was, I don't want to give away the ending of the film, and I hope everybody has an opportunity in Canada to watch this very beautiful, important film. Um, I will say that there is a moment in the, in towards the end, where David Suzuki has uh, a bit of a, a story where he shares being overwhelmed with emotion, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I was, I found that very evocative. Um, what was his experience like bringing that story to the stage, and was that moment? Um, in the stage version and, and how, how did he, uh, I guess, feel about that and how did audiences feel in response to that part of the story? I mean, that like, it's a, it's a very personal story that he shares. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think what's unique about that story is that it shows David in his vulnerability too. I think we all have this idea that David's like, he's got it figured out and he doesn't Mm -hmm. feel the same fears or anxieties that any of us feel. It's, Mm -hmm. It's, not true at all. He's just a person. And so I think, I mean, I think that pe- that story is important to to tell because it is dark, this moment that we're in. It's mm-hmm. frightening. Yes. Something about him expressing it in the way that he did. I mean, you know, it hit me in a way that nothing else has. Yeah. Um, of course, I, I keep up on all these things and I care about them deeply too. But for for me to witness him express in that way, I just, I don't know, something's shifted. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. That's what art's supposed to do, you know, and uh, you guys did a beautiful job. Thanks. Really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and the, the balance of that end is like, how do we it's what we talk about in that last scene is like, how do we not let the despair swallow us? Like, how do we hold these two competing stories? The story of like, it's, it's possible that we won't make, like that we won't make it, that we've messed up too bad and that it's, it's too hard or we're not going to change in time. There's that side of the story. Mm-hmm. And then there's the side of the story where we can change and we have to try, we have to do our best. And so how to hold those two things and really be moved to action like David mm-hmm. said, when you feel that despair, you can't sink into it. You can mm-hmm. you can feel it, but don't let that stop you. 
it, it's all the more reason to take action. Mm-hmm. That really struck me, like being with the two of them, these two eco-warriors who've dedicated their lives to this thing, if they have managed to sustain that fight and not give up, who am I to say it's too big, it's too hard? Well said. Yeah, very well said. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of, of um, empathy that comes up in a lot of the work that you do. And um, interestingly, you know, in one of the conversations I had with one of the other guests, we were speaking about empathy and how um, she felt that it's extremely important that we always follow up with empathy f- to move into action mm-hmm. for social justice um, for positive change in society. Um, so it's just fascinating to me that these conversations are overlapping with yeah. all of these incredible guests. I feel very honored and privileged to chat with everybody. I wondered if we could speak a bit about some of the amazing work that you're doing with um, your production of the Bhagavad Gita, and um, which I understand is one chapter of a larger epic tale and mm-hmm. um, just speak about the mini opera a bit. Um, I would love to hear a bit about that if yeah. you're open to sharing, please and yeah. thanks. So the Bhagavad Gita is one chapter of, in the Mahabharata, which is an ancient Indian epic. It's like, it's kind of like India's version of the Odyssey or the Iliad. And so it's a collection of all of these myths and stories that really revolves around uh, two groups of cousins who are fighting for the throne of a kingdom. It's, it's kind of not clear who should inherit the throne. And these two kind of groups of cousins end up going to war for this land that they're fighting over and end up killing a lot of their family and killing each other. And uh, I mean, as, as happens in most, most great epics, there's always a big war. Uh, where good and evil are at battle, or kind of good and evil are at battle. Um, and anyways, th- that show will happen, it'll premiere in uh, in 2023 at the Shaw Festival. Um, and it's a show that we've been working on for the past eight years, I want to say. Um, wow, we congratulations. Both- Thank you. Yeah, it's, I mean, we were again delayed by the pandemic, so hoping that this time's the charm. <laughs> Um, but the Gita is like is one chapter and it's considered kind of the holiest chapter of the Mahabharata. And it's really a conversation between God and one of the characters. Beautiful. And, and yeah, so it's it's Bhagavad Gita means the song of God. And so in figuring out how to tell that part of the story, uh, we were looking, we we needed to find a more heightened uh poetic form to hold that story. Uh, because it wasn't going to be enough just for two people to have a dialogue, um, and so opera became it what became kind of the 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 formal choice that we took, and so we work we've been working with our composers Suba Sankaran and John Zosky. Um Wonderful, yeah, and uh, an artist named Sharda Eshwar who helped us find the work on the correct Sanskrit uh, shlokas, which is the kind of verses in the Gita. Um, and so it's it's a Sanskrit opera that's in the middle of our production. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I I have to come and see this. Yeah, <laughs> I saw some of the amazing. teasers. Oh, you know, yeah. beautiful, beautiful and teasers Meher that you sent. Meher Pavri, who is the opera singer, is just unbelievable. That was like the one of the only workshops we got to do during the pandemic. We oh. did like a five day workshop in between two of the big COVID waves. Like we were so lucky, we managed to do it. 
But to be in a space with like that music and that vibration again was mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, this, like it literally moves you to mm-hmm. hear, like that, vi- the vibration of singing like that. It's amazing. Oh, I was moved. I was moved um, in my office watching her <laughs> and her beautiful, her beautiful expression and her, her beautiful yeah. voice. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. And so is the production still, um, some of the reading that I'd done had suggested as it was in development that it was um, seven hours and in three parts. Is it now in two parts? And is the length going to still be that amazing length? Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's still, yes. it's still, it's so, so it's great. Two theatrical productions that's, that are bridged by a community meal. And oh. so at the end of part one, you'll go into another space. Um, you'll get served up a traditional South Asian meal. And while you have the meal, you'll hear one of the stories, um, one, one story uh, told by a, a South Asian elder. Because part of the experience of the Mahabharata, for most people, they experience it around the table. Like they're stories that are part of life. They're stories mm-hmm. that are digested over a lifetime. It's really rare to ever um, sit down and listen to the whole thing. And so you get that meal experience, which is just a different way of hearing the story or a story. And then you come back for part, um, the, the third part. So it's like production, meal, production. And it's about seven oh. hours long. Yeah. It sounds beautiful. Um, I'm definitely coming to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you so much for speaking a little bit about that. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that came up as I was doing some reading uh, into this work is someone had mentioned that epic stories help make help us make meaning of the world we live in. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that, how stories help us make meaning. I mean, we know this as artists. Um mm-hmm. How can that awareness of storytelling and meaning ma- meaning making, um, you know, help others in the in in various fields in various disciplines? Yeah, I think epics are unique in that. I mean, there's there the fact that they're thousands of years old, and somebody has chosen to pass them on for all of that time. Like they've just stuck around because mm-hmm. they're powerful, which is kind of a mystery in and of itself. Um, but I mean, it's, I've definitely felt over the pandemic, I felt more and more drawn to, to myths and epics because of this, this, it feels like we're in this kind of epic moment in the world. <laughs> like with <laughs> yeah. you your love, like the, the problems feel so big and daunting and it feels like it feels somehow like humanity is building towards some kind of climax (laughs) yes Um, and there's something uh inherent in myths that that carries those those sentiments and it it allows us it because they look at the individual in society it's Mm -hmm. look at these individual stories in the context of a much greater narrative um i love that yeah, and I I think that I mean it's it's what we do with stories, it's what we do with um in the pandemic. I mean, I felt that a lot. Like what is my role in this bigger picture? Mhm. What how cuz we're suddenly confronted with this this thing that we're in this thing together. We're on this mm-hmm. planet together. We have to figure out a way to be together, to live mm-hmm. together, and it's really hard. <laughs> yes. So yeah. I know, there's something there's something for me comforting about the fact that our ancient ancestors 
we're asking the same questions. I mean, comforting and terrifying to know that like we haven't changed that much, <laughs> but it's something so extremely human about us that these, these stories are still relevant. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I really enjoyed um, engaging with uh, an interview that uh, you and Ravi did with an acclaimed mythologist, author, and illustrator, um, Devdut Patnayak. Um, mm-hmm. And some of the conversation was just so beautiful and inspiring and imaginative around um, our idea, essentially our, our place in a larger trajectory of time and what is a life and um, is it just the here and now in this one life that you're living or are you part of, you know, an ongoing um, intergenerational energetic transference of, um, of uh, energy and, and knowledge? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wondered if you could speak a little bit about some of the amazing um, discourse that you three shared in that conversation oh, around yeah. myths. He's, he's amazing. Like he, if you, if you get Truly. the truth, look him up, Devdut Patnayak. He does this amazing yes. TED talk, actually. I don't know if you've, have you seen it? I haven't, but I'm definitely going to go and watch it after this because he really sparked my imagination with this he's, talk. He's a powerful storyteller. He's, he's unbelievable. So he, he is a mythologist. And he, a lot of the work that he does is to help uh, Western companies understand how to do business in India. And mm. so he kind of breaks it down into, into uh, mythology and storytelling. And um, he says, look, there, if you want to understand a culture, you have to understand them through the stories that they tell and how mm. they understand the world. And so he, ta- he says, look, there's this, there's a, a great story. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it in this one, but you should watch the Ted talk anyways. Um, <laughs> There's, uh, um, who was it? Alexander, I think it's like Alexander the Great or something. And so Alexander the Great and a gymnosophist, um, who's like a, a, basically like a monk who's meditating in the Himalayas. And Alexander the Great is on this like huge quest around the world to like conquer everything. And the gymnosophist is just sitting on a rock and they meet each other. And, um, they, Alexander says, what are you doing? And or, sorry, the Alexander says, "Yeah, what are you doing?" And the Juno Sufi says, "I am doing nothing." <laughs> and uh, he says to Alexander, "What are you doing?" And Alexander says, "I'm conquering the world." And they both laugh at each other because they think <laughs> the other one is so foolish. <laughs> and and he says, and and Devdet says, "You know, to understand that there those worldviews, you have to understand how they think about time, because for the <laughs> Greeks." The Greeks understood that we only have one lifetime. You have one mm-hmm. chance in life to be great. And you have to do everything in this life to be great. And if you become great, then you'll pass the river Styx one time and you'll go into the land of, you'll go into basically heaven and you'll live forever mm-hmm. in that other place. Or you go into hell and that's it. And it's just, it's good or bad and then it's over. But for the gymnosophist, for whom, Life, there's there's a river, but you go back and forth across the river a million times because you keep being reborn. And neither death nor life is permanent. And so whatever you do in life, there's there's time. It's not just this lifetime. You've got many lifetimes to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And the point of life is self-realization as opposed to achieving greatness in this world. Mm. And so 
Uh, I mean, he explains it way better than I did, but I just think that the, that cultural, that fundamental difference of how we understand time and our role on this planet is so powerful and fascinating because it does, it dictates how we behave. I mean, oh, all yes. Western world you can see is so, we're so obsessed with growth and, and ambition and, mm-hmm. and, and doing everything we can to be the Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and have everything <laughs> go to the moon and do it all mm-hmm. in this one lifetime, regardless of the cost on anything else. Mm-hmm. Because we think that this one lifetime is all we have. But if we actually understood our lifetime is that we're going to keep coming back to this planet, we would think very differently about how we treated the earth. Yeah. Yeah. The cost on so many things, right? The yeah. earth, um, others, yeah. are we, are we treating others well? Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating to consider, especially in light of, um, the various works that you've put out, you know, I feel like there's a real undercurrent here of, of um, a thema- thematic vision in all of the artistry that you're doing. I'm fascinated. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, would you, uh, what would you say that is? I'm curious to hear from someone else. Oh, you know, I, I want to sit with more of your work, Miriam. Like, I think you are, you're really um, engaging in a lot of very interesting work that is thinking broadly about the impacts of community, the impacts in community and how as a community we can move forward. Um, You know, I'll speak in a bit, I'll ask in a bit about some of your initiatives to support mentorship, which I think can have a huge ripple effect in society, um, you know, in in the arts and also outside of the arts. Um, But also I'm fascinated, you know, in how broadly your vision goes in terms of you know, how, how we treat other people um, in society and also how we treat the planet, you know, like mm-hmm. you're really, you're engaging in all sorts of projects <laughs> that are stemming from, uh, is it safe to say like the heart, you know, the, it feels, and I mean, you mentioned in the film too, that you're wearing this beautiful um, heart that your partner made for you. And I thought, yeah. oh, and it's made up from a rock and yeah. it's, you know, it's from the earth. And I just, yeah. I was so moved watching that film. Um, oh, I mean, you yeah. know, for David Suzuki, but also for your story and your story with your partner and the love that you share. It was just, it was delightful oh, to, um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm fangirling now. I'm sorry. It happens. Um. Well, it's, it's always great because especially, it was funny, that was, I've never done film and TV work before. So that was the oh first, my gosh. that was the first like recorded experience that I had. And it was so weird putting it out into the world because you never know, you have no idea if anybody's watching or who's watching or what people are experiencing. Like in the theater, you kind of know immediately. You can feel mm-hmm. there's an immediate response, but mm-hmm. it's very strange releasing a film and being like, uh, is anybody up there? <laughs> because you can't don't have a relationship yeah exactly you don't hear the uh the laughter or the size of um you know uh, the the poetic moment landing in the in the audience you don't feel the breath yeah yeah really great I felt like I got to know you a bit through that film oh yeah I mean it's that's the thing I think about a show like that it's really interesting because you we create an intimacy that allows the audience to feel that they're there, that they, that you, that, that they're, that we're all, that we're together, which I think is, I mean, I definitely feel that, that 
it's a time in the world that we need that that we need that feeling and that theater is one of the places that can help us connect to that feeling oh absolutely the world most of the media makes it feel like we're all apart we're all separate yeah I think um that's that's on purpose sometimes eh? like it seems like keep everybody separate keep them consuming keep them (laughs) chasing the you know the capitalist dream keep them separated from their feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we do in, in theater, I think, really matters. Mm. Um, what we do in any artistry. And I mean, my gosh, you're doing so many different forms of art. Mm. It's really inspiring. I wondered if I could ask you a bit about um, some of the amazing mentorship and community initiatives that you have on the go right now um, that I think are um, you know, influencing the generations to come of artists and storytellers and leaders in Canada. Um, you have two um, initiatives. One is the This Gen 2021 Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And um, I can link to an article about that that was um, from February 2021 for our listeners. So we'll put lots of things in the show notes. Um, and that article was in the Toronto.com uh, website. And it mm-hmm. said that... Um, The intention of the program is to address and eliminate barriers to accessing leadership. It deals with issues of issues, including racism, misogyny and transphobia. And you had mentioned that if we can help these leaders harness their voices, it's a benefit to the whole country and the whole world. Our art will get better. Our communities will get stronger because the idea of what leaders look like will be different. And I think this really speaks to, as I said earlier, your kind of big vision, your big artistic vision for really changing society for the better. So thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that initiative, please? Yeah, this gen, I mean, this gen fellowship is really, um, is really close to my own heart and has been really close to me for the last few years in the pandemic. Um, it's it's a, a a national fellowship that we run at Why Not Theatre. Um, and we select a, a cohort of Fellows from across the country who are uh, already leaders in their own in their own right and in their own community, and what we do is we connect them to each other and connect them to an international um, faculty of arts leaders around the world who are all BIPOC, uh, mostly women identifying or non-binary or trans artists uh, who are who are, have been like leading um, in big ways in communities all over the world and really breaking open other people's imaginations of what's possible. Mm, that's um, amazing. Yeah. And so connecting, connecting those artists to, to those to connecting Canadian artists to those networks and to resources um, to, to continue fighting for change in their communities has been really powerful for me. And is also for me has created a, a, a community of folks across the country who are doing the same work, which has been really exciting. Thank you so much for sharing. I love this idea of breaking open imaginations of what's possible. Yeah. Um, would you would you say that that's been um, a huge part of your own creativity your whole life, or is that something that's developed into even more and more um, limitless possibility as time has passed? Yeah, you know, I think that I think I've always felt pulled towards that question of like, what else is possible. Mm. Um, I didn't always see it here in Canada. So I trained here. I went to an acting conservatory. I graduated. I worked in the theater and I was kind of, I was, um, the kind of casting that I was getting was pretty traditional and boring. And the stories that I was (laughs) engaging in was, 
I, fe- I kind of just felt like, is this it? Mm-hmm. Isn't there something more? Which drew mm-hmm. me to, to study, to travel abroad, because I think I had always... I'd always experienced when I travel somewhere new, when I, when I'm in a culture that's not my own, a language that's not my own, I listen differently. And there's so much, there's just so much to learn somewhere else when I'm not the center, when my perspective or the, the way that I think or the way that I understand the world is not the center. And so studying, I was uh, fortunate enough to study at Ecole Jacques Lecoq, which is in Paris, which is where I met my partner actually. Um, Mm. And, um, and to study there, it's an international school. So you have artists from all over the world coming to train and you're constantly making work together. And so cultures and languages and ideas and politics are constantly colliding. And mm-hmm. in that collision, we find something new or we find an intersection or mm. tension that is something to open up that reveals something about all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me, that was what was so exciting and that the energy of, of that place and, and, and being able to travel and see work internationally really for me became, uh, um, part of the undercurrent of what I, what I do and what I really want to focus my attention on because, um, it's where I most feel most alive. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I, I feel alive, uh, more alive talking to you, um, more and more as we speak about these Mm -hmm. things. So thank you so much. Uh, one of the things that's come up in the podcast as we close, I'll just share is this idea from many of the guests, guests that none of us are really interested in reproducing disciplinary norms in our fields that we are actually wanting, um, to be creative and to change things and to try new things and to see, as you said, this sort of limitless possibility. Um, and you mentioned that supporting leadership, this was in a March 15th, 2021 article that I can link to. And, um, in arts magazine, you said something along the lines of supporting leadership is not replicating the models that we know. And um, I find that so very inspiring. And, you know, earlier you said, isn't there something more? That was your um, uh, experience mm-hmm. training and, and, and being in the arts industry here in Canada a while back. And I really think you're creating that with each <laughs> imaginative initiative that you um, pioneer. So well, thank um, you. is there Thank you for being here. Is there anything um, I haven't asked that you'd like to speak to before we close? Is there anything you want to share with our listeners who I think maybe some theater voice scholars and practice-based voice and theater peeps and perhaps interdisciplinary um, arts humanities folks? Is there anything you'd like to share before we close? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I guess I would just say one, one thing that I'm thinking about a lot right now is process. How do we change our processes? Because I think a lot of the time um, we want change, but we don't change the mechanisms. And the hard thing to do is to change the mechanisms and the process because that process, process equals results, actually. If we keep the process the same, the result will always stay the same. In an artistic process, if we're trying to change systems, the process for how things are made will change the result. So I'm I'm just thinking about that a lot in my own work, um, within our company, um, and in the stories that we tell. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to start thinking about that more deeply as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, and then I would just say to uh, uh, tell folks to check out our website, why not theater, um, to see the other work that we're doing. We've got a lot coming on the pike, and you and we have actually made that. We're we're in the process of making the film accessible um, for people to just rent because it was uh, we released it only for a limited amount of time. So uh, if people want to see the what you won't do for love film. You can uh, you can either find it through our website or you can go to do for love d o f o r l o v e dot why not dot theater and it'll take you straight there. Wonderful! Thank you so much for letting us know. I will definitely link to that. Mm. I want everybody I know to see that film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you and thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's Thanks been a, so an absolute pleasure. Oh yeah, thank for you. me too. Thanks. It's been great to chat. Yeah. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about any of the resources we spoke about in this episode, please check out our show notes on voicingcreativity.com, where you can also email or send us a voice memo with your feedback at podcast at voicingcreativity.com. You can follow us at Voicing Podcast on Twitter, and you can tweet about the podcast by using the hashtag voicingcreativitypodcast. You can also rate and review this show at Apple Podcasts. The Voice and Creativity podcast was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. The Voice and Creativity podcast is supported by the University of Winnipeg Research Office, the University of Winnipeg Human Research and Ethics Board, and the University of Winnipeg Faculty of Arts and by research assistant, Jordan Berkwin. A special thank you to Dave Peterson of Ross River Dana Territory. The podcast theme song is Beauty Is All by Ketza from the album Creative Center. You can download more of their work on freemusicarchive.org and from their website, ketzamusic.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other season one episodes. Thank you for listening to the Voicing Creativity Podcast. Podcast.